you probably can tell I try and work hard at trying to be gracious with the presentations. That's so important for all of us because, again, we're dealing with a spiritual issue. If people don't see Christ in us, nothing we say is really going to matter. So it's not about winning arguments, and it's not even about the facts. It is ultimately a spiritual issue. So I, I try to be very gracious in everything I present. I'm going to try to be gracious on steroids for this next one as we talk about creation in six days. I'm going to say a lot about that before I even get into the, the meat of the talk. And again, I mentioned if you like controversy, you came to the right place. You're going to get plenty of it right now, but you'll understand the approach that I'm using very, very quickly here. So creation in six days deals with the dreaded topic of the age of the earth. <laughs> And often talking about that specific issue produces more heat than light. <laughs> I'm going to try to focus on uh, producing light, you know, helping you understand things better rather than making it more controversial and argumentative. And it's just, it's become an extremely tough subject to address because there are so many misconceptions in people's minds. And for many, many Christians, there's a lot of biblical illiteracy, unfortunately. A lot of Christians haven't personally taken the time to really study Scripture, so their idea of Christianity and a lot of topics comes from what someone else told them. Some of it might be true. Uh, some of it might not be. The problem is they don't really know which is true and which isn't because they just heard it from someone else, and they're ultimately trusting the person they heard it from rather than what does Scripture say. And so, again, I'm trying to be extremely tactful. This is the number one topic that keeps me out of most churches. Most churches do not want to even talk about this. So I'm honored that I'm here and the subject is even coming up. But I also would say I have not talked to pastor about this. But they didn't say, hey, you need to come in and you need to teach people this particular view. That's not what they said. They're allowing me to address this topic. And so I am addressing this topic, and you'll see from what angle I'm coming at in just a second, but I just want to put everything in context. Uh, I already told you my background. I have degrees in physics and engineering. I've been lecturing for 38 years. So what that means is I am right about everything I believe. <laughs> and I am glad you're laughing, because that's not what that means. It just means this. I should probably have an opinion by now. Seriously, after 38 years, if I don't have an opinion, something's wrong. <laughs> And that's what you're going to hear this morning. You're going to hear my opinion on this particular topic. I believe that there are three options. You only have three options for finding the truth in this particular topic. Number one is you could find the world's leading experts in astrophysics, geology, biology, radiometric dating, etc., and trust what they have to say because they're the world's leading experts. I mean, they really know. So you hang around them, you learn from them, and you, you trust them. That's one option. Second option is to become the world's leading expert in all those areas. Now you don't have to trust anyone. You are the leading expert in all those areas, and you really, really know. Third option is to simply trust the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth as you sincerely strive to study God's Word to the best of your ability. Guess what? That's the one I'm recommending. <laughs> trust what God is saying through your personal study of God's Word. There are only two things necessary that you will need in order to do that. Number one, you will need a copy of God's Word, and that's what it looks like on the inside, in case you're curious. <laughs> My dry sense of humor. The second thing you would all need is a green dove. No, 
the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you need God's Word. Using God's Word and studying it, you can allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth as you study God's Word under God's guidance through the Holy Spirit. That means there is one thing that nobody here needs to come up with the truth, and that is me. You don't need some supposed expert coming along saying, trust me, I have degrees and blah, blah, blah. No, I do not want you to trust me. Seriously. I want you to hear what I'm saying, but then take what I'm saying against your understanding, led by the Holy Spirit, of God's Word. The Holy Spirit is a much, much better teacher than I am. And I would have much more respect for someone who does that, studies God's Word, prays about it. If you come to a different conclusion than me, I will disagree with your conclusion, but who cares? I am not the standard. I would, I would have more respect for you walking out of here believing something opposite of what I believe if you came to that conclusion by studying God's Word and praying about it versus someone else who walks out saying, well, I believe what Jay said because it sounds smart and he studied this. No, then you're trusting me. Big mistake. So I'm not here to get you to trust me or to twist your arm. I just want you to be challenged to make sure that whatever your opinion is, you really should have an opinion, and it should be based on your studying of God's Word. So right or wrong, you could take some of the Scripture and say, here's what I believe and here's why. You know, so that's where I'm headed. In fact, let me back up a second. The one guarantee I give you, and this is a, a serious guarantee, when I am done with this topic, you will have a much much better understanding of why the majority of Bible scholars and even scientists in the past have come to the conclusion of a, a literal six-day creation, and even why today many leading scientists and Bible scholars still believe in a six-day creation. You will better understand why they came to that conclusion and why they believe that. What you do with it, that's totally up to you. That's between you and God and the Holy Spirit and your studying. You'll just better understand that view because for most people, you got the other view. We, you know, most of us have probably gone to public schools and you learn all about Big Bang and evolution and documentaries. It's just everywhere. You are inundated with millions and billions of years and all that. You get that, and then often people say, well, that fits in with the Bible because Genesis can be interpreted different ways. It doesn't really matter anyway. People kind of understand that one, but very few people understand, well, what's with the six-day thing? I mean, why do they say six days? Why do they think it's literal? I mean, where's it come from? That doesn't seem very believable you're going to better understand that particular position. That's all I'm here to do. I'm not telling you you have to believe what I believe. That's a lot of caveats for the beginning. In fact, in the, in the book that I wrote on creation, I actually have three chapters on this. Not because it's the most important topic. It is not. But it's one of the most misunderstood. So one of them is basically a time bomb, the old earth, young earth debate. You know, why is this so controversial? Does it even matter? Second one is the, the age of the earth, biblical considerations, what does scripture say, and then finally the scientific evidence. And what we're going to be focusing on initially here is the relevance of this. Why are we even talking about it? What could be less important, right? Well, we're going to find out that it's not the most important thing, but it's actually pretty significant. So here's some important points as we start off. Number one, belief in an old earth is the default position that generally doesn't need to be defended. If you're talking with a group of other people, if someone happens to believe, well, yeah, I mean, God used the Big Bang. There's so much evidence for the Big Bang, and someone had to start it. It couldn't happen on its own, so God, that was part of his process. That's just kind of a default. If someone says that, 
people aren't going to jump on them. Oh, yeah, prove it. Come on, prove the Big Bang and all that. Most people aren't. They're like, well, yeah, I guess we kind of know that. Scientists have proven it. So it's kind of default and doesn't need to be defended. But if you, on the other hand, say, you actually believe in a literal six-day creation, people might be all over you. It's like, how could you possibly believe that? That's such a naive view. Science has discovered so many things. And so you, you would be defensive. So it's a lot easier just to, to kind of go with the old earth view because it's the default position. Number two, most people, quote, know the earth is old, not because of any real personal knowledge, it's just what they've been taught over and over and over. And I, I get that. You know, when you hear something enough over and over and over and over and over and over and over, it's just, I mean, it's got to be true or they wouldn't be saying it so much, you know, and we'd hear you know, different things about it, but it just must be true. And number three, no matter what your view is on this, and in a group this size, there's got to be different views. I mean, we're doing something wrong if, there's, if you guys are all on the same page with everything you believe. Um, so there, I'm sure in the audience today, there's, there's different views on this. I totally get that. But no matter what your view is, don't come at it with both guns blazing. You have to believe this view or that view before we talk about anything else. I think we make a big mistake. I, I will come down on the literal six-day creationists on this one. I think too many people and too many organizations come out, both guns blazing, cover issues all the time, young earth, young earth, young earth, young earth. I, I think they're doing some damage to the overall message when they do that. This is my advice. Um, with skeptics and non-religious people, I say, save the issue for later. If a skeptic brings it up and they want to talk about the six-day thing, well, the Bible says six days, how could you believe that? I would say, can we put that on hold temporarily? There's a, there's a few other things that I would really rather talk about first before we get to that whole age of the earth thing. And I, the existence of God, the inspiration of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Those things are more important to discuss first before we get to those things. And then also with Christians and other people who are religious, I say back into the issue and let them connect the dots. And very, very briefly, this is what I mean by that. Let's say you're talking to a Christian. And let's say, let's say you are here and you happen to kind of lean towards the six-day creation thing and they believe in the Big Bang in billions of years. You could just ask them a question. What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And they're probably going to say, well, you know. I said, yeah, I do, but just humor me. What? What's going to happen? Well, I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, why are you going to go to heaven? Because I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Okay, why did you do that? Well, as the Bible says, we need to do that to get to heaven. Okay, well, why, why is that necessary? Well, because we're sinners. Okay, why are we sinners? Because we sin. Okay, well, why do we sin and why are we sinners? Uh, well, I guess, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, they sin in the garden. And okay, you just mentioned Adam and Eve. That's the whole Genesis thing, right? Yes, okay, so they brought us back to Genesis. You didn't do it. They, they mentioned Adam and Eve in their defense of what they believe. Now we're back in Genesis. So tell me more about that, what, what actually happened there. And as they start to describe that scenario, they will connect the dots and they will realize what they believe about Genesis actually determines what they believe about their own salvation. It's, it's kind of the foundation for why they have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And they will realize wow, this isn't like a vague, generic thing. I should really have a very specific view and be able to, to, to defend it, especially biblically. They connect the dots. You didn't come in saying, this is the most important thing, we're not talking about anything else until we get this settled. They, in defending what they think and believe as a Christian, brought you back to that topic. So I say back into the issue. Number five, for most of history, we didn't have science. So if you want to bring up science today and say, well, we can't believe Genesis says this and that means these things because of this science and that science, 
Okay, we can get to that, and we will in this talk, but for most of history, we didn't have science. So what were people supposed to do? Did God really write this in such a way that he's like, oh, I know people are going to actually believe what it says with the six-day thing. I didn't really mean any of that, but eventually... You'll have modern scientists to tell you, no, I meant something very, very different. I meant like this Big Bang, maybe even evolution and all that. And you'll finally know that once you have the modern science thing. But for now, I guess you're going <laughs> to naively believe what I told Moses and others to write. I have a hard time believing that God would be such a poor writer and kind of rely on future stuff to help us truly understand. Because for most of history, all we had was God's Word. So whatever your belief is, you should be able to defend it first and foremost, through God's Word. And the science is interesting, and we will get to that. Sixthly, there are smart people on both sides. Seriously. I mean, I know old earth creationists and Christians who believe in old earth. Some even believe in evolution. They're brilliant people. Super sincere. I don't question that at all. So we can't say one is right versus the other because of the smart people or how many. You don't determine truth by taking a vote on how many people we got on this side and how many we got on that side. It has to be defended by actual evidence. And is this an issue of salvation? Some people say, we shouldn't even be talking about this. You know, it doesn't really have to do with salvation. Well, take a look at Romans 10.9. It says, if thou confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and have the correct view regarding the age of the earth, thou shalt be saved. <laughs> now, this is the, the JKV, not the, King, the KJV. This is the JKV, which is the just kidding version. <laughs> so that's not what that verse says. King James actually says this, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is not a salvation issue. It's not. But that doesn't mean it's not significant. So yes, you can believe in an old earth and evolution and all that and still go to heaven. You can also steal something and get to heaven. You know, if your sins are forgiven, it's not an issue of that. It's not a salvation issue, but the two are tied in to each other, and it is still significant. So with the age of the earth, we have some options here. Number one is the concept of you know, billions of years. Number two is in the range of thousands of years. Option number three, there really isn't an option number three. Nothing in between cuts it. You know, it's either we go with billions of years, which is what the secular scientists say and many Christians buy into, or we go with what Scripture seems to be indicating again. Billions of years are talking about for the earth itself, about four and a half billion years old. And when you look at Scripture and you look at the genealogies, you get roughly 6,000 years. Those where those two things are coming from, nothing in the middle cuts it. It doesn't really solve things to say, well, it's two million years old or 500,000 years old. So this is kind of the two options that we're dealing with here. And I get it. Six-day creation sounds crazy. Not because of what it really is, but because of how people have grown up and what they've been educated and what they've heard over and over and over. So I fully, fully expect when someone finds out I believe in a literal six-day creation in more of like thousands of years, not billions of years, I expect them to think that I am off my rocker. I'm just nuts. I'm crazy. That I must not know anything about science at all. I'm just, I'm naive. I totally get that. So when I address the issue, I come from that position. They are looking at me like a crazy person, and I better share with something with them that makes them realize, you know what, that's not so crazy. It might not change their mind right away, but they're like, oh, I thought this was like a crazy thing, you know, and, and conspiracy theories and all that. It's like, wow, that's... You, I didn't know about that. You know, I'll have to think about those things. So I get that. They associate six-day creation with Bigfoot and aliens and 
you know, flat earth and we never landed on the moon. Just all these things that are kind of strange. You lump in six-day creation with all those things. I'm going to show you a quote from Pat Robertson. I am not trying to single him out. Many things Pat Robertson has shared over the years I am in total agreement with. Not everything, but there's a lot of you know, good things that he's shared. I just want to give you an example of a view that is out there held by many people. He's just one of them, so I'm not trying to single him out, but this is something that he said. He goes, look, I know that people will probably try to lynch me when I say this, but Bishop James Usher wasn't inspired by the Lord when he said that it all took 6,000 years. It just didn't. You go back in time, you've got radiocarbon dating, you've got all these things, and you've got the carcasses of dinosaurs frozen in time out in the Dakotas. They're out there. So there was a time when these giant reptiles were on the earth, and it was before the time of the Bible. So don't try to cover it up and make like everything was 6,000 years. That's not the Bible. If you fight revealed science, you're going to lose your children, and I believe in telling it the way it was. The truth is you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to think that this earth we live in only has 6,000 years of existence. I could give a whole series of lectures just on this quote. There's so many things that he has pointed out. I don't know if I highlighted some of them, a review of this quote here. I haven't given this talk in quite a while because most people don't want to hear it. So this is kind of a refresher to me. And I'm going to probably skip, uh, warn you ahead of time, I might skip some slides because it would be probably too long. So occasionally I might decide just to fast forward through a few things. But he says, you got radiocarbon. You can't believe it on earth. you got radiocarbon dating. We're going to talk about radiocarbon dating. He's not a scientist. If he knew radiocarbon dating, he would have never said this because it actually backs up a six-day view, not millions of years. And then the dinosaurs, you got dinosaurs out there. Yeah, we have dinosaur fossils out there. And when you look at the dinosaur fossils, it goes totally against the idea of millions of years, even though we've taught. Yeah, and it's going to be exciting. You'll, you'll see some of that in just a little bit when we get to that part. And he said, these reptiles are on the earth, and that was before the time of the Bible. I, my memory isn't the best, but I thought Genesis 1 1 said, in the beginning. That means in the beginning. That means there was nothing before that, no time before that. How can you have before the Bible when the Bible starts out with the beginning of time? That doesn't even make sense. So dinosaurs were what? Like floating around and nothing for millions of years, and then God started the beginning? And it doesn't even fit. It doesn't make any sense. And he, he means well. But most of what he says is nonsensical. It's not biblical and it's not scientific at all. Again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. So we got two angles here. We can look at it from what the Bible says and what we can learn from science. We're going to start with Scripture. That's where we need to... If this is the inspired Word of God, and if you're a Christian, you need to agree with that. If you don't, what's your source of authority to pick and choose what you believe in here and what you don't? So we're going to start here. I think it's the authoritative Word of God, cover to cover. Science is interesting, and we will get to that too, but start out with the biblical considerations for this. Important question to ask. This is interesting. I thought of this a few years ago. Could Jesus have risen from the dead after 15 minutes, a week, or 28 years? Is that physically possible? He's God. Could he have chosen to do that? The answer is yes. He could. He's God. He could have done anything. So why are we so hung up on three days? Really, he could have done anything. It could have been, you can't say three days. It could have been anything. Why are we hung up with three days? Because it says three days. That's what he told us. He said it was three days. It's not that he couldn't have done it in a different period of time. He told us that he did three days. That's why we today we say Jesus was in the grave and rose again the third day. Because that's what it says. So, 1 Corinthians 15, 44, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's why we are, quote, hung up 
on three days. So it's not about what God could have done. He's all-powerful. He can do anything physically. There are some things he can't do. He can't lie. What, he's not strong enough? He can't lie? It has nothing to do with his strength. It has to do with his character. Um, but physically speaking, he could do anything that he wants because he's all-powerful. So it's not about that. He could have done it in any time period at all. It's about what he said he did. Never a question of ability. It's about what did he say he did. Well, here are some common claims. The Bible doesn't mention the age of the earth. Uh, God doesn't measure time the way we do. Who knows how long a day is to God? It doesn't matter what you believe about how or when we got here as long as you believe God did it. Those are very common statements that I hear from people, and it kind of since gets them off the hook. We don't even need to talk about it because the day with the Lord is, you know, what all these things that we hear. Well, again, as you hear the rest of this presentation, you realize that this is more significant than you think, and it really does matter. So, what does the Bible say about the length of the six days of the creation week? We'll take a look at that. What exactly is a day? Well, words have meaning. It's the only way I could give this presentation is because everything I say has meaning behind it and your brain's putting it together. Words have meaning. So are the words of the Bible. Now, they say in realty, humorously speaking, the three most important things in realty are location, location, location. What are they saying? It's really important where your house is if you're trying to sell it or buy a house. That's really important. Well, with Scripture, you could humorously say it's context, context, context. you got to look at everything in its context, or you can get the Bible to say anything you want. The Bible says there's no God. I can prove atheism by the Bible because it says there's no God. Well, unless you look at the context, the Bible is saying the skeptics say there is no God. So you got to look at everything in context. So, defining a day. I could say this. In my day, we had to get up early and work all day long to save enough money to go on a five-day vacation. I just used the English word day three different ways in one sentence. But you knew what it meant each time by the context. In my day, it's a general period of time. In the past, in my day, we had to get up and work all day long. That's the light portion of the day. I would work during the light portion of the day so I could go on a five-day vacation. That would be the full solar day, five solar days vacation. One English word, three different meanings in one sentence, but you knew the definition by the context each time. So the Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-M. And guess what? It can have five different meanings. Well, that, see, that proves the earth is billions of years old. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Just because a, a word can have different meanings doesn't mean your specific view is correct. Hold on, we, we can't jump uh, fast forward like that. So it has five different meanings. An ordinary solar day, like about 24 hours, the light portion of the day. It can mean a general or vague period of time, never with a specific beginning and a specific end, just general vague. A specific point at one point in time, sometimes the scripture is meaning that. And then it can mean a period of a year. And the prophetic passages in the Old Testament, when they're using yom, it actually means a period of years by its context. So here's the, the principle of first mention. The first time something is mentioned, it's very important because you haven't defined it yet. You've got to go to there to see what are they saying about this. The first time God uses this word, Genesis 1-5, and guess what he says? And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. What's that sound like? It's, it sounds like a regular day. You'd have to really read into it and say, no, it doesn't mean that at all. He's defining it the first time he uses it. It sounds like a regular solar day here. <clears throat> and it says dividing and ruling over the day and night. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament from the heavens to divide the day from the night. 
And God made the two uh, great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Well, if a day isn't a regular day, how, how do you divide millions and millions of years? If a day is millions and millions of years, how do you divide that from millions and millions and millions of years of night? It doesn't make any sense. And why are we talking about those days not being regular days? Because many people who believe that God used the Big Bang and everything's very old, they look at the days in Genesis and say, well, maybe they weren't regular days. Each day was millions or billions of years. You put them all together, you get 13.8 billion years for the universe. So that's one way of trying to get all that time into scriptures, saying, well, the days aren't regular days, we'll stretch them out. But it doesn't work when you're looking at the context. And it talks about days and years. Genesis 1.14. It says, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. If a day isn't the day, if a day is millions and millions and millions of years, what's a year? Again, it doesn't make any sense. The plain meaning makes sense, but if you stretch them out, it becomes nonsensical. A day is a million years, what is a year? And then this word yom, anytime associated with a number. The word day, yom, along with a number, occurs 359 times outside of Genesis 1. So you look at the creation account in Genesis 1, look outside of that, every single time you see the word yom, day, with a number, it is always translated as a regular day. Nobody questions that. Guess what we have in Genesis 1? There's an evening and morning, day 1, day 2, day 3. In numbers at each time, the evening and morning were the first day and the second day. There's a cardinal or an ordinal there every single time. Well, if it's always translated day outside of Genesis 1, why would you do differently in Genesis 1? We have the same context. The phrase evening and morning. And anytime you see evening or morning, each occurring even on their own, it's 19 times outside of Genesis 1. Every single occurrence, it's always translated regular solar day. There's no question. And every time we see them occurring together, it's 38 times outside of Genesis. And Every single occurrence, it's always translated a regular day, always. Guess what we have in Genesis 1? There is an evening and morning. First day, evening and morning, second day. Now, that's kind of odd. Why don't they say there was a morning and an evening? That's what a day is. A day is morning and evening, right? Not to the Hebrews. The Jews, Moses is writing to the Jewish people. Their day started at 6 p.m. They had an evening and then a morning. And God's talking to them. He said there was an evening and a morning, day one. Evening and a morning, day two. To them, it just screamed day, and that's how they translated it throughout history. The plural form of day is yamim. Every time we see that in Scripture, it's always referring to regular days. 700 appearances every single time we know. This is talking about regular solar days. For six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh. Seven days. That's part of the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God himself. If those days weren't regular days then our week means nothing, and the Sabbath rest means nothing. God defined this. Other options for uh, conveying long periods of time. If God really meant long, long, long periods of time in Genesis, he could have used other words. I'm not going to go through each one of these. He could have used any one of these things to convey that God used a process of millions and billions of years. If he wanted to convey he did it in solar days, he only had one choice, yom, and that's the word he used. So again, that's, I think, pretty good evidence. It means a regular day. That's the one he chose. But then the skeptics say, oh, gotcha. Uh, The Bible says a day is a thousand years. I wish I had a million dollars every time I heard that. I know you're supposed to say, I wish I had a nickel every time or something like that, but I I did the math on it. I'd have more money if I did the million-dollar route. (laughs) Um, I have many people, and they're always super sincere, 
probably some of you here have said that to someone else. Well, you know, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, whatever. So those days in Genesis aren't regular days. Again, they always say that sincerely because what? Someone else told them that. They're like, oh yeah, that explains it. And they say that and they go on. It's like, you know, I don't even have to think about it because I just say this and it works. And most Christians, even if they believe in a sixth day, they don't know how to respond to this either. But this is kind of interesting. I asked these people a lot of questions. I asked them, you know, it doesn't exactly say that, but do you know where it's found? It doesn't say a day is a thousand years, but do you know where it's found? And they say, eh, no. Do you know who the author is of the passage that you're misquoting? Uh, no. Do you know the context of the passage that you're misquoting and you don't know the author of? Um, no. Then how do you know a misquoted passage with an unknown reference and an unknown author and an unknown context somehow means that the days in Genesis 1 are not normal days? <laughs> That's a good question. It's a fair question to ask. What they're generally referring to is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. The context is absolutely fascinating. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming, the return of Christ? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, for this they, are will- they willingly forget. King James says that they are willingly ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and by in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being overflowed with water, that's the flood. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. There's another judgment coming, you had the flood, second judgment is going to be by fire. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. What is Peter actually saying here? Uh, I don't even know what slides I have coming up here. This is what's being said. Peter predicted 2,000 years ago that the skeptics of the end times, which most of us probably believe we're living in the last days, Peter's talking about the skeptics of our day. And he's saying these skeptics who are denying the return of Christ are denying it for two reasons. There's two reasons causing them to deny the return of Christ. You think they'd be these lofty spiritual things? No. He said they're doubting the return of Christ because they reject the Genesis creation account and they reject the Genesis flood. That's what these verses are literally saying. How does that tie into them rejecting Christ? Very simply. By rejecting the Genesis creation account, they reject God as the ultimate authority. God created everything. They don't want to be under his authority. They want to do whatever they want to do. And by rejecting the Genesis flood, they don't believe there was an actual flood. What was the flood? It was God's judgment on the sin of mankind. They're not sinners, they're good people. They don't need judgment from God, so they reject God's authority and his judgment. That's why they reject the return of Christ. What is the return of Christ? It's another judgment on sin. Peter says it's going to be fire the second time, not, not water. That's why they're rejecting the return of Christ. And Peter predicted that, and today every single secular scientist rejects the Genesis creation account and the Genesis flood. But many Christians now reject the Genesis creation account and the flood. Oh, God's the creator, but he didn't do it the way it says in Genesis because we, we know so much better now. Science has advanced. You can't take it literally anymore. We know better. So they reject the Genesis creation account. Yeah, God's the creator, but he didn't do it this way. And there was never a worldwide flood. The secular geologists don't think there's any evidence for it at all, so we can't believe it. So the Genesis flood either didn't happen, it's just a story, or maybe it was just a local event in Noah's area. It's not what Scripture describes. I have a whole four-part series on the flood. wish I had time for that. Peter predicted this, and then what Peter is saying in context is they're doubting the return of Christ. Where is Christ? He hasn't come back yet. He's not here now. In fact, he's never coming back. In fact, everything continues on the way it always has from the beginning of the universe. 
Just these slow processes, nothing catastrophic or miraculous has happened. Everything continues on the way it always has. That's the basis for modern geology today. It's called uniformitarianism. Slow natural processes over millions of years. The skeptics are claiming that. What the skeptics want to have happen right now in a day, the return of Christ, God could take a thousand years. And what they would think would take millions of years, the origin of this universe and all that, God can do in a day. That's what Peter is saying in this passage. It has nothing to do with that God didn't create things in six days. So they're taking a passage out of context, misquoting it, and using Hebrew words to try to define Hebrew words back in the Old Testament. Greek words in the New Testament to define Hebrew words in the Old Testament. It's totally taken out of context. It's actually saying the opposite of what most people want to say. So I'll fast forwarding here the next portion. Here's a Hebrew scholar. This guy knows Hebrew very, very well. He doesn't believe that the Bible conveys accurate history, but he knows what it says, what it's claiming when you look at the Hebrew. And this is what he said. He said, probably, so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis, he's writers, he doesn't think it was just Moses, he thinks there are maybe multiple writers, writers of Genesis 1-11 through intended to convey to their readers the ideas that, A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours, which you now experience. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provide a simple, by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the latter stages of the biblical story. And see, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human life and animal life except those in the ark. He said, that's what the text is teaching. He doesn't believe it's literal, but that's what the actual text teaches. And I, I think that's true. The text supports what we're talking about here. So, Yom is really defined as being a regular solar day. Here's a very interesting, semi-humorous quote from Martin Luther. So when Moses writes that God created the heaven and the earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were something else. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish it to go. I think there's a lot of truth there. We too often say, well, God wouldn't do this. He wouldn't send good people to hell because, I mean, my God is a loving God. That's not the kind of God I worship. Maybe you don't, but the God of the Bible says there's judgment. There's a standard to be achieved, and it goes into all those details. So we need to go by what it says rather than whether we fully understand it or like it. To be honest, there's a lot of stuff in here I don't like. (laughs) Seriously, it's making me feel guilty. I don't like that but it's what God said. And then there's other things in here I don't really fully understand, but I'm still responsible to study them and trust God's word and trust the Holy Spirit for his guidance. And we're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, how in the world could God do everything in six days? There's no, really, God did all this in six days? No, we're asking the wrong question. Why did he take so long? You're all powerful, snap your fingers and be done. Impress us, billionth of a second, just be done. That's what I would do do if I was God. Good thing I'm not God, because the first thing I do is smash me. But the question is this. He said, for six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, because now he is telling us why he took so long. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh. He said he took six days for creation, not that he needed all the time or he couldn't do it quicker. He wanted to set up a pattern. He created everything in six days and rested on the seventh so that we would work six days and rest on the seventh. If those days weren't regular days, there's no basis for the Sabbath rest in our work week or any of that. Only makes sense if those were regular days. Also, the timing of Adam and Eve. I think this is huge, an important point. Jesus, who we're supposed to focus on as Christians, not care about the age of the earth or anything, Jesus said, for if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, who was Moses? Well, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, including the Genesis creation account and the flood. Jesus is saying, if, if you're not going to believe that, I'm not sure why you'd believe anything I have to say because Moses wrote all about me and you're rejecting his words. Jesus took all of Scripture seriously, including what Moses wrote about creation. And Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you probably know, a group of individuals are very arrogant about their knowledge of Hebrew Scripture and all their rules and do's and don'ts and all those things. Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not really about that. It's about a personal relationship with him, Jesus. They hated that. And so they were constantly trying to trap Jesus with their questions. Let's ask him this, because it doesn't matter how he answers. We got him. We'll, we'll nail him. No matter what, they wanted to kill him, and they ended up killing him. In this passage... As Mark 10.6 and Matthew 19.4, their corollary passages talking about the same thing, they're trying to trap him with their questions, and they're talking about marriage and divorce. Here's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. There could be a little sarcasm in here. I mean, Jesus called them. He called them out, called them vipers. So I, to me, this is my opinion, I see a little twinge of sarcasm in here because these are the Pharisees. They know the Old Testament Scripture. And this is what Jesus said. Uh, but from the beginning, God created them male and female. In fact, in Matthew 19, he says, haven't you read? That's the kind of the sarcastic, like, haven't you? I thought you were the guys who were the experts. Haven't you read that he who created them, created them male and female from the beginning of creation? Jesus, who we're supposed to be focused on as Christians and not worry about the whole creation thing, just focus on Jesus. Well, long before Jesus was Savior, he was Creator. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, for him, by him, through him, all things were created. So if you're going to focus on Jesus, you need to take him just as seriously as your creator, not just savior. So Jesus said that God created Adam and Eve from the beginning of creation. Why does that matter? Here's a powerful visual. So here's a timeline. Let's say that God used the Big Bang, and God is all-powerful. If he wanted to use the Big Bang, he certainly could. Nothing physically withholding him from doing that. So let's say he did. That's just his method. Well, we're taught that the Big Bang happened. I'm going to round it off. Let's say 15 billion years. I say 13.8. 15 billion years ago, God creates the universe. And then stars and galaxies form after that. And then about 4.6 billion years ago, they tell us the Earth formed, molten state, and cooled down. And then they say modern man appeared about 200,000 years ago. We've been evolving from an ape-like creature for 6 million years, but in our modern form, we've been around here 100 to 200,000 years. Well, Adam and Eve were not apes. They were modern people like us. So they were around maybe 200,000 years ago. If God used a Big Bang, that would be the scenario. Well, that puts Adam and Eve at 0.0013% away from the end of that whole timeline. Not at the beginning of creation, at the very, very end. They show up fairly recently. But Jesus said that God created Adam and Eve from the very beginning of creation. And we're supposed to focus on Jesus well, let's humor ourselves, and let's say God created everything in six days. It puts the earth on day one and Adam and Eve on day six. And the first week of everything, 
according to the chronology, about 6,000 years ago, a flood about 4.4 thousand years ago, then you have Abraham about 4,000 years ago, and then you have Jesus 2,000 years ago. That puts Adam and Eve at 0.0004% away from the beginning, just like Jesus said. So did Jesus not know what he's talking about? Did he lie? I don't think those are good options. Maybe he knew what he's talking about because he created everything. He is the creator. And they were created from the beginning, but that only works if those days are regular days. Again, from the very beginning, God created them male and female. And the order of events are wrong in Genesis if God used the Big Bang. So again, I'm giving you my opinion. If you squeeze the Big Bang and other things into Scripture, now you really do have problems in the Bible. And here's why. According to the Big Bang, the sun formed first, closer to 5 billion years ago. The nebular hypothesis, gases swirling and forms the sun. Gases keep swirling and then form all the planets. So the sun formed first and then the earth. But the Bible says that God created the earth on day one. He didn't create the sun until later on day four. Some people say, well, see, that's a silly story. You can't have the earth and not even have the sun here for four days. Yeah, it's not a problem. The plants were created the day before on day three. They can survive one evening without light, and then the next day you got the sun being created. Plus, you already had light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. I heard one comedian say, you know, in the beginning there was nothing. And then God said, let there be light. And there was still nothing, but you could see it. <laughs> well, that's kind of funny. So God creates light on day one to say, I don't need the sun to provide light. Yes, you will use that later, but I provided the light. Just like God's going to do in the new creation, he's going to do away with the sun. He goes, you won't need it anymore. He himself will provide the light, probably just like he did in the original creation. But the order is wrong in Genesis if God used the Big Bang. Another example, according to the Big Bang, the earth cooled down 4.6 million years ago, 4.6 billion years ago. So you had solid land. And then over hundreds of millions of years, asteroids and comets pelt the earth, bringing ice, melting, and building up the oceans. So land first, oceans millions of years later. What does the Bible say? God created the earth on day one, covered with water right from the get-go. He didn't let the dry land appear until later on day three. The order is wrong in Genesis if God used the Big Bang. Also, according to the Big Bang and an evolutionary scenario, fish evolved first and then later fruit trees on the land. God created the land, dry land, on day three and put plants on it and he didn't create the fish until later on day five. The order is wrong in Genesis. Another example, reptiles. They tell us reptiles appeared on earth first in history in the fossil record and all that, and then birds later. They actually believe birds evolved from uh, dinosaur-like creatures. You want to see a dinosaur? Go look for a hummingbird. Seriously, I have a quote on it. Yes, even the hummingbird is really a dinosaur. That's where birds came from. They evolved from dinosaurs. They're just a different form of dinosaur. So the reptiles first and then birds later. What does the Bible say? God created the birds of the air on day five. He didn't create the land creatures until the next day, day six. The order is wrong if you try to squeeze the big bang in there. So we have a problem with the order of events. What's the biggest deal of all? Okay, we are not going to talk about flat earth I know it's an interesting topic for a lot of people. I bring this up for one reason, but a little bit of humor first. The only thing that flat earthers fear is fear itself. <laughs> you got to like that. E even if you're here, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, if you happen to believe in flat earth, and I don't even make it funny. This is just funny. <laughs> if I was a flat earther, I'd say, okay, I admit, that's funny. That's clever. That's just my kind of sense of humor. We're not going to be talking about flat earth, but when someone brings up the topic of flat earth, where is the focus? The focus is on the shape of the earth, right? Is it flat or is it spherical? I, I believe it's spherical, but that's a whole other topic. But the focus is on the shape of the earth. 
when someone brings up the concept of young earth creationists or old earth creationists, where's the focus? The focus is on the age of the earth. The age of the earth is not the important thing. I honestly do not care how old the earth is. There isn't one age that's more spiritual than another age. Not at all. It's not really about the age. It's about this, death. What you're about to see, the next few sets of slides, are probably the most impactful that I have in all the presentations I give because it wakes a lot of people up. They've never really thought about this before, and when they see it visually, they're like, wow, i got some thinking to do. It's not about the age of the earth. It's about the concept of death. Like, okay, uh, where did death come from? When did it get here? Why did it get here? All, all these things about death. Everyone here this morning has a question that you have to answer for yourself. Not my answer, your answer. Question you all have to answer. First, we talk about some facts. It is an absolute fact that there are many layers in the earth. We talked about that a little bit already. Showed you the Grand Canyon thing. We call this the fossil record because these layers are literally filled with billions and billions and billions of fossils. This is a fact. Nobody questions that whatsoever, not even atheists. We're all on the same page there. We also know for a fact that fossils represent death, disease, pain, and suffering. They're creatures that were living at one point, but they're dead now and they get buried. So the fossil record represents death, disease, pain, and suffering. The question you all have to answer is, how did that happen? How did all those layers in the earth get there with billions of dead things? They are there. We have to answer, how did that happen? If you believe that that came about through natural history, it was just how God created the earth. You got a big bang, the earth cools down 4.6 billion years ago, and then over hundreds of millions of years of sedimentation and wind blowing and this and that, the layers accumulate. That's earth history. Grand Canyon from the bottom, the sedimentary layers cover about 550 million years of earth history above the rocks, they say, are like 1.2 billion years old and all that. But just hundreds of millions of years of earth history. Well, God did that. Someone had to do that. Okay. If that's what you think, then you believe that God spent hundreds of millions of years of building the earth up in creatures, apparently had already been created and they were living and dying. We have evidence of cancer and dinosaur bones and tumors and things like that. So they're survival of the fittest, eating each other, bacteria, you know, tumors, cancer, all that going on for hundreds of millions of years. And then when the layers are done, God plants a garden on the top and he puts Adam and Eve in it. And they're saying, oh, this is such a perfect world, it's paradise. Uh, no, you are living on top of a graveyard of billions of dead things, of death, disease, pain, and suffering. That means that God, in his creative process, used death, disease, pain, and suffering long before Adam and Eve even existed. So it obviously cannot be their fault that that death, disease, pain, and suffering is here. That got here before they, God even created them. It's not their fault. Again, that makes God responsible for those things. On the other hand, if you think those layers were laid down catastrophically in God's judgment during the flood, Genesis 6 through 8, that makes man responsible. And Romans 5.12 says it was by Adam's sin that brought death in the world. A lot of Christians will push back, well, that's just talking about sin, death coming to mankind. The main focus is death coming to mankind in that passage. That's the main context. But you look at the bigger context, especially in Romans, the whole earth groans and travails because of this curse coming into creation because of Adam's sin. It's not just a human death thing. So this scenario would say God created everything and it was perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect. They sinned and disobeyed God, got kicked out of that garden. And about 1,700 years later, things were so incredibly bad, God said, that's it, time's up. I am judging mankind's sin. 
I'm wiping them out with a worldwide flood. And that catastrophic flood comes and lays down those layers in a short period of time, burying a lot of things that had been alive, but now they get fossilized. It's, it's a very different picture. So, is what we see here, that's just a snapshot of God's process of creation. He used hundreds of millions of years in death, disease, and pain, and suffering. It's just, this is kind of how he did it. Or is this a very graphic picture of God's judgment on sin, leading to the necessity of Jesus Christ coming and dying on a cross? Again, if God created all that death, disease, pain, and suffering, it's not a result of our sin, then did Jesus waste his time dying on a cross? It would certainly seem so. That's why I think this is a significant issue, and that's a question you have to answer. You have to think it through. It's not about the age of the earth, but what you think about the age of the earth will determine how you think death got here. So you really need to think through that, biblically speaking. I also came up with this question. I'll ask Christians, do you believe that Jesus is going to return? And they all say, well, yeah. I mean, John and many other places talk about the return of Christ. Do you believe that God is going to create a new heavens and new earth? Revelation 21 talks about that. Well, yeah, he's going to create a new heavens and new earth. Is he going to take billions of years to do that? No, he's going to do that miraculously. Why couldn't he have done that to begin with, just like he said? Well, I mean, you couldn't because the Big Bang and this and that. Wait a minute. You're being inconsistent. You're willing to let him do it miraculously at the end, but he couldn't do it the way he said he did it to begin with. So it's just a little inconsistency there. The latter part of this talk now is going to focus on what most people really, really want to hear. Okay, we've talked about all the Bible stuff, but if you want to know about the age of the earth, you can't go to the Bible. You've got to go to science. The truth is just the opposite. This is God's eyewitness account. He told us what happened. Science is tentative, and they're making guesses about the past. So it's interesting. But you're going to get more of a concrete answer from Scripture than the guesses of science, which their ideas keep changing. Their, their idea of the age of the earth has changed and changed. It kept getting bigger and older and older. They've, it's probably you know, settled for quite a while now, but they kept changing because they kept learning new things. So, but we'll look at the science stuff here. So some beliefs about science. A lot of people are intimidated by it. Many of you probably don't have a science background, so you're a little intimidated when someone brings up carbon-14 dating or radiometric dating. You're like, ah, you know, what, what can I say? I don't have a background. So they're intimidated by it, and we also are fooled into believing that it's black and white. See, science is what it is. Scientists, they just go into a laboratory, they do an experiment, they come out, they say, sorry, this is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. It's black and white. Oh, no. It's very colorful. There's a lot of interpretation that goes on. I have a whole talk called The Myth of Settled Science. First time I gave it was banned on YouTube. <laughs> Violated community standards. They never told me what I said that was wrong because there wasn't anything that was wrong and it. it was very tactful. But science is not black and white. I sure some of that in that talk. But science can never tell us exactly how old the earth is. And this, in all my presentations, is the only time I ever talk slow when I say there are no clocks in nature. None. I didn't say there aren't too many. I said there are none, no clocks in nature that you can use to figure out how old the earth is. Wait a minute, we got carbon-14 dating, radiometric dating? No, there are no clocks in nature. What we have are processes. Things are happening in nature. And by making certain assumptions about the processes, you can turn them into a clock. But they're not sitting there. You look at them, oh, this is how old it is. No, you look at a process and you make some assumptions and you say, according to this, we think it's this old. That's how that works, and it'll make a lot of sense. We're going to talk about radiometric dating, and I'm going to keep it super simple. Every single person here is going to understand the big picture of radiometric dating by thinking about your own house. 
So forget about the term radiometric dating right now, and I want you to all seriously, literally think about picturing your kitchen sink at home right now. I'm sure you all have kitchen sinks. So picture your kitchen sink, and there's a glass sitting in it, and it's about half full of water. And you are now going to try to figure out how long has that been sitting there, like the age of the glass in a sense. How long has that glass been in that sink? We're just talking about your kitchen at home. So you make some observations. Number one, you observe the size of the glass. Number two, you observe that it's about half full of water. And number three, you observe the faucet is dripping eh, about one drop per second. Take all those things into account. You do some calculations in your head and you say, I, I think it would take maybe an hour, an hour to fill up halfway just with this you know, slow dripping. You just took a real process that nobody denies. The water dripping, everyone can see it right now. Good observational science. It's actually happening. But you made three assumptions about that scenario to turn it into a clock, and you had no idea you made the assumptions. Number one, you all assumed the glass was empty to begin with, didn't you? Why? You don't know that. What if someone was drinking some water, it was half full, they set it in the sink, half full, they walk out. You walk in two seconds later, it's been there an hour. No, it's been there two seconds. It was half full to begin with. You assumed it was empty. That's an assumption you don't know. You made that assumption. You didn't even realize it. Number two, you assumed that no other sources of water entered that glass other than the water dripping. What if it was empty? But someone walked by with a bottle of water, they filled it up halfway, walked out, you walk in two seconds later, it's been there an hour. No, it's been there two seconds. But there was another source of water that you don't know about. You made an assumption that source wasn't there. You also assumed that no water was leaking out the bottom. The third assumption is the drip rate. It's dripping about a a drop per second. We can see that now. You assumed it was always dripping one drop per second. And if the glass was empty and it filled up just by dripping, you'd be probably about right. It might take an hour to fill up with the dripping. But that's only if all three assumptions are correct and you don't know that any of those are correct. And if you're wrong about the assumptions, you could be way off with your estimate of how long that glass has been sitting there. That's what happens with radiometric dating. Those assumptions are made. We'll look at that in a second. I don't think those assumptions are good assumptions, but even if we say, fine, have all three assumptions, you can have those. They're unreasonable, but take them. Even if we grant those assumptions, 90% of all the processes we see on the earth yield young ages by making those assumptions. Only a few yield really old millions and billions of years. Most of them give you young ages, but they ignore those because that doesn't fit with their narrative. It won't back up what they want to teach. So they'll ignore the 90% and focus on the questionable other ones. That's even if we give them the benefit of the doubt of those assumptions. So here's one specific example. We can talk about the uranium-lead radiometric dating method. So uranium-238 decays into lead-206. It's a real process. We've been measuring it for a long time, and it's really slow. It decays very, very slowly, and it seems very, very consistent. So we know that's good science to measure the rate of decay. So what happens is we look at a rock, and that uranium over time will decay into lead. And so they check out how much lead is in that rock, like how much water is in your glass? How much lead is in there? Well, how long would it take for that to accumulate from the lead decaying? And they would say, okay, there's that much lead. Well, that would take one billion years at that rate. Well, guess what? They made the same assumptions you made about the glass, which is this. 
You assumed the glass was empty to begin with. They assumed the rock was, quote, empty to begin with. It didn't have any lead in it, so any lead we see came from the uranium. Well, there are rocks that form today that have lead in them right away. So their methods are way off because they assumed it didn't have any lead in it, and any lead they do see came slowly from the uranium. That's a false assumption. Secondly, you assume no extra sources of water went into your glass. Well, they assume no other sources of lead came into that rock. Well, groundwater can bring those elements into a rock. It can wash them out of a rock. So they have to assume what they call a closed system, that this rock, once it formed, sat in nature for one billion years with nothing from the outside affecting it. It was protected, closed system. That's a crazy assumption because we can see natural processes today affecting them greatly. That's going to throw their dates off. And then number three, the constant drip rate in the sink, into that glass. They assume that uranium has always decayed at the rate we see today. Now, it's pretty constant today. I don't question that. It's good science. But they assume it has always decayed at that rate, which if it did, that would take a long time to form certain things. So very, very, very briefly, I'm going to look at some of this. I'll probably skip a few slides here. I don't want to get overly technical. When uranium-238 decays into lead-206, it doesn't just go boom and all of a sudden it's lead-206. It goes through a series of transformations into different elements, about 16 of them. And along the way, during that slow process, it's kicking off helium nuclei. So the nucleus of a helium atoms being squirted out eight different times. So uranium decays into lead, it's producing helium, which we use in the helium balloons today. Picks up some electrons along the way, makes full helium atoms. So when the lead is, or the uranium decaying in the rock, helium is, is coming out. It's slippery. It doesn't want to interact with other elements. So once it decays, it leaks out of these, these zircon crystals into the rock itself, and then it comes out of the rock and it hangs around in the atmosphere. It hangs around because it's too light to get going fast enough to get out of our atmosphere. So when the decay occurs, helium's coming out and just kind of hangs out. If the rock has been decaying for a billion years, it'd be plenty of time for all the helium to leak out and be gone. You wouldn't expect to see hardly any helium in this thing. Guess what? There's still a fair amount of helium in the rocks, which would mean the rock can't have been around long enough, otherwise the helium would be gone. So what we can conclude is, yeah, the, the decay occurred, but it must have happened so fast, there wasn't enough time for the helium to get out. So instead of going slowly over a billion years, it happened very quickly, and the helium, a lot of it is still there. And now we have some very, very, very strong scientific evidence to confirm our idea that this decay rate was greatly accelerated in the past. And I'm going to keep it simple. So there's a, a complex graph up there. There's two major lines, a green one and a red one. The green one on the top represents a young earth creation model, what we get from some of the data that we would measure if everything actually happened recently. The red line on the bottom would be if you believe in uniform processes in billions of years, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, it would represent what we would expect to find if the earth really actually is very old. So there's the creation model up there. Here's the secular model, or even Christians who believe in billions of years. That's what we would expect to get. If we're going to go out and gather some data, and we would expect it to be along these lines. And these lines, they look kind of close together, but they're, they're miles apart. They're, there's a factor of 100,000 in between them, so they're not close estimates. They're totally two totally different predictions of what is expected. Factor of 100,000 throws them off. So what we did, skipping some of the details, we have drilled further and further into the earth to look at these decay rates under different temperatures and pressures and all that. 
and then they actually plotted the data. So they're doing real science, plotting the data to see where it falls on this graph. Does it line up with, oh, it looks like things are old, or is it better suited for the young Earth model? Here's the data when you plot it. If you know science at all, that gives you chills. In fact, it eeks of cheating. That's too good of a match. Like, you don't expect it to be that good of a match. This is incredible. In fact, I'll just animate it again. I just think that's so cool. I'm a geek. Um, but they were hoping for a closer match to the creation model than the old Earth, their young Earth model than the old Earth model. They were not expecting to be just almost perfect. But that's what it lined up with. It's showing that, yes, that in the past, there had to be a period of time where these decay rates, which are slow today, must have been much faster, maybe even up to a billion times faster than today. So what they would think might take a billion years could happen in a year, maybe the year of the flood. Some of the accelerated decay might have happened during the creation week. Some of it might have happened during the flood. They're still researching a lot of this, but this is very, very powerful evidence to show that these assumptions that they're making, constant decay rate, really don't hold up, but that's what allows you to get these, these dates that are really, really old. And here are some examples of errors when they've been using radiometric dating when the dates didn't work out the way it should be. Also point out something very quickly. The difference between precision and accuracy, and here's my analogy. If I told you I weighed 198.11537835589 pounds, that is unbelievably precise, beyond belief. It's also wrong. It's not accurate, but it's precise, isn't it? And we get so wrapped up in this precision when the scientists tell us all this stuff, they figured this out, and they got all the numbers, and we're so blown away and impressed doesn't mean it's accurate. It just means that that's a, a very precise number. So even when they're doing radiometric dating, and it can get complex, don't get overly impressed and think, well, it must be true because it's complex or they're giving me precise numbers. I mentioned Mount St. Helens yesterday. I helped co-lead a tour with some other scientists a couple summers ago. Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, did a lot of damage in a very short period of time, but here's the one point I'm going to make. In 1984, four years after the original eruption, there was a lava dome that formed. So magma's coming out and it's forming new rocks, baby rocks. They're just formed in 1984, and that's when they were born because the clocks get reset because they're molten and they cool down. It's a baby rock. So we know they were born in 1984. We know that. We saw it happen. Well, they used potassium argon to date these rocks, which they're from 1984. This was in 1996, so this would be, what, 12 years later. They should get an age of 12 years old because they were born 12 years earlier. Potassium argon, radiometric dating, gave them dates that ranged from 340,000 years to 2.8 million years old from rocks we saw form. It should have only been 12 years old. That is way, way off. Then a mountain in New Zealand, they use uh, methods on that. This lava flow was from 1945 to 1975, so we know about how old it is. Potassium argon and isochron method they used said 2.5 to 3.9 billion years old. Way, way off. Uh, if they're way off on rocks of known ages, we saw them form, but if they're way, way off on that, why do we assume and trust them when they're dating rocks? Well, we don't really know their age. We weren't around when they formed. They just magically assume that they're always right on that when they're way off on rocks that we know the ages of. That doesn't make any sense. And I'm going to have to shorten this up, too, because of time. Everyone's heard about carbon-14 dating. I call this the carbon-14 dating Trump card. I'm not talking about President Trump. 
you know what a trump card is, kind of beats everything else. And here's a scenario. Skeptic and a Christian are talking. The skeptic says, do you really believe in all that six-day creation stuff? Christian often says, well, yeah, I guess so. The skeptic says, what about carbon-14 dating? And the Christian might say, well, I, I don't really know much about carbon-14 dating. What about it? Well, it proves the earth is billions of years old and the Bible's wrong. And the Christian might say, well, I, again, I don't know much about that. I just believe the Bible. Yeah, you have your silly little blind faith. I live in the real world. We deal with science and we cure diseases and we land on the moon and we're going to go to Mars and all these things. And they walk off and the Christian is just humiliated. And they think, I don't know that I want to share my faith anymore because I just, it's just so embarrassing. I don't have answers. You know, maybe I am wrong and maybe, you know, maybe they know what they're talking about because that's science. So it's the Trump 14 Navy card. If anyone ever says to you that the Bible is wrong because carbon-14 dating proves the earth is billions of years old, that proves one thing, absolutely proves it. That person knows nothing about carbon-14 dating, nothing. And I'll explain it briefly. I'll try to keep it simple. I will skip probably a few slides. These are the two major takeaway points because I might skip some other things. These are things that you can take away about carbon-14 dating. Number one, it is only used to to date things that were once living. You can't date rocks with it. So if they say this rock is 1.5 billion years old, we're not even talking about carbon-14. No scientist uses it to date rocks. You can date fossils and skin and things like that. It's not used to date rocks. And number two, no scientist would ever use it to date something that they think is pretty old, like 100,000 years or older. Why? Because it decays away too quickly. It'll be gone after maybe let's say 80,000 years, there's nothing left. So if a secular scientist thinks something is a million years old or a billion years old, they would never use carbon-14 because it can't be there any longer. It would have decayed away a long time ago. But yet the skeptics use this to disprove the Bible. It has nothing to do with that at all. Again, it's like an ice cube. It's melting away at a rate. You can't get old dates with it. No secular scientist uses it to get old dates like that. So again, I'm going to wing it to decide what I skip and and what I show you. The simple version of this is our atmosphere is largely nitrogen. We think about breathing oxygen, and I think it's 21% oxygen, but most of it's nitrogen that we're breathing in. Well, this is what happens. You got nitrogen 14 in the atmosphere. Sunlight comes through to the air that we're breathing, bangs into the nitrogen 14, and it converts it into carbon 14. That's where carbon 14 comes from. Sunlight comes into our atmosphere and creates carbon 14. Carbon-14 is radioactive. It's unstable. It doesn't want to stay carbon-14. It wants to go back to what it was doing before the sun rays came in. So it creates it in the atmosphere, carbon-14, and it decays away, turns back into nitrogen-14. That's where it comes from. And then this is what happens. Carbon-14 can connect with oxygen. When it's hanging around the atmosphere, it makes carbon dioxide. We've all heard of that, especially with the whole global warming thing. Don't get me started. Um, But so now we got carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and some of it has this radioactive carbon-14 in it. Well, guess what? The plants absorb carbon dioxide. It's their food. It's a good thing. They absorb it in the plants and into the trees. And then the animals come along and eat the grasses and the plants and all that. So now the carbon-14 gets into the animals too. And then we come along and we, well, we don't eat animals. We eat meat, right? (laughs) Um, So, But we eat the animals. We eat the plants and all that. So now carbon-14 gets created in the atmosphere and it gets into all living things. And that's how it works. And then... Eventually, things die, and scientists have determined, they're pretty sure that when something dies, it stops eating. So what happens? Well, it was bringing all this carbon-14 in its whole life, and it would decay away, but then if you're like me, and I know I am, you eat again, you bring more in, and that decays away. You bring more in your whole life, you're bringing it in, and it decays away. But now when things die, 
whatever they have is going to decay away. You can see the little carbon-14 things will get smaller. That decays away, and it won't be replaced anymore because they're not eating to bring new stuff in. So scientists dig up bones. They measure how much carbon-14 is left to try to figure out how long ago did this thing die, stop eating. That's how they determine ages of things. That's how carbon-14 dating works. And there's a bunch of details behind it, which I will probably skip, which will show you the assumptions they make can make the dates way off. Now, they're not giving you millions of years, but sometimes they'll say 45,000 years, 36,000 years, 21,000 years, things that go beyond the 6,000-year period of Scripture. But even those, when you take the right factors into account, those things get shortened, usually to about 4,500 years, which takes you back to the time of the flood. So I'm going to actually skip a bunch of slides because this talk is, is way too long. It's fascinating how the method works, and I'll skip some of the assumptions. Um, you can ask me later in Q&A or, or later. But here are some oopses when they've used carbon-14 dating on things where the dates came out terribly wrong. Saber-toothed tiger bones. According to their narrative, these bones are supposed to be 100,000 years old. Like, you know, if evolution is true and earth history and all that, saber-toothed you know, died out maybe 100,000 years ago. That's the age it should be. They used carbon-14 dating on it, said they were 28,000 years old. No, that's still older than like the biblical time frame, but it's way off of what it should have been if they were right. Even the 28,000 years would be corrected down to maybe 4,500 years when you take all the right factors into account. But the point is, it was way off what they were expecting it to be. Another example, freshly killed seals. Uh, no seals were harmed to make this PowerPoint slide. I asked this guy if he could act like he was dead, so I took his picture... And, uh, but this, this guy should be zero, zero years old because he hasn't died yet. And the ages go back to when something died. So the carbon-14 date should say this thing is still alive. It should have a, a date of zero. <laughs> Said it was 1,300 years old. <laughs> like the thing is still alive. That's way, way off. Living snail shells, they're still alive, supposed to be zero years old, 27,000 years old. Something's wrong with the assumptions that they're making here. Uh, if the carbon-14 dates are in error, testing things out of known age, why do we trust them when we're dating things that we really don't know the date ahead of time? And finding carbon-14 where it ain't supposed to be. Very interesting. Coal. Coal is supposed to be at least you know, 100, 200 million years old. Shouldn't have any carbon-14 in it because after you know, 70, 80,000 years, it would be completely gone. We have yet to find a single piece of coal on the planet that doesn't still have carbon-14 in it. Now, it could be there if it was buried in a flood four and a half thousand years ago, but 200 million years shouldn't be there. I'll also back up a second. Um, I mentioned yesterday, um, the earth has to be old because it takes millions of years to form coal and oil, right? Oh, I mentioned last night, you can form coal and oil in a laboratory in a few hours. It doesn't take time, it takes the right conditions. I'll skip the details there. Dinosaurs, we talked about them very, very briefly. Again, this is proof everything's very old because even Pat Robertson said, you got these dinosaur carcasses out in the Dakotas. They're millions of years old. You know, forget the 6,000-year thing. It's crazy. So when you think of dinosaurs, you instantly think of millions of years. I, that's what I learned in grade school growing up. I thought dinosaurs are cool because they're millions of years old. My church was a great church, but they never really talked about dinosaurs. So I just thought, well, I can believe whatever school says because no one's telling me it's wrong. Well, when you find a dinosaur bone, you don't find a tag on it that says 65 million years old. The scientists have to make up a name for it, which is usually fine. They kind of sometimes know what kind of dinosaur it is. But then they make up an age, which is not fine at all. And this is how it could work. So they dig up some dinosaur fossils. This is a T-Rex here. And then they're going to take it into a scientist to come up with an age for that bone. 
The scientist in the laboratory who specializes in dating techniques asks, where did you find it? Meaning, in the geologic column, the colorful thing in the middle, that's the geologic column with all the layers and the names they've given them and all the ages, millions of years. The scientist in the laboratory wants to know where in the column did you find it? Why? What does she care? Just date the bone. No, she needs to know where it was found so she knows how old it was supposed to be. So she has a target. So they'll be told that, well, this, this is dinosaur data about 65 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous. Oh, yeah, okay, that's right, dinosaur bone, they died out 65 million years ago. Now we have a target. We're, we're expecting something about 65 million years old. So instantly they say, well, then we know we can't date the bone because there won't be any carbon-14 in it to date. It's too old. Wait a minute, you don't know the age of the bone yet. That's the whole idea. Date this bone and tell me. No, we can't because it's too old. You don't know the age yet, but they make the assumptions. A dinosaur, we know they died out 65 million years ago. No, you don't know that. It's part of your narrative. So they won't date the bone. You put it aside. Oh, I know what they do then. They date the rock layer where they found the bone, right? Nope. Because those are sedimentary layers. They're fragments of other rocks. You can't do radiometric dating on sedimentary layers. So they're not dating the bone. They're not even dating the layer the bone is found in. So they find a nearby igneous rock that was close to the layer where the bone is found. They bring that in, and you can do radiometric dating on igneous rocks. So we're already pretty disconnected from the bone to begin with. And they have multiple methods they can use on the rock. So let's say they use uranium lead, and it says 1.1 billion years old. Oh, well, we know that's wrong, and it's way too old. We could throw that out, something happened there, and dismiss it instantly. Then they have rubidium strontium. 103,000 years old. That's way too young. Must have gotten contaminated. We can just say contamination must have been there. We'll rule that out. Then we have fission track dating, 25 million years old. It's getting closer, but it's still, it's just just not right. Throw that out. Then potassium argon, 68 million years old. Ah, see, we were thinking about 65 million years old. Potassium argon says 68 million years old. So what happens? Well, then they publish it in the magazine. Now, let's summarize this. Dinosaur was discovered. Is that true? Yes, they really, truly found dinosaur bones. It was a T-Rex. Yes, it was a T-Rex. According to their belief system, they expected it to be 65 million years old. Yes, that's true. That's what they were expecting. Well, they used potassium argon on it, 68 million years old. That's published, and the public is so impressed. Those scientists are so brilliant, I don't know how they do that. I couldn't, but they, I'm glad they do. They know what they're doing. That's proof you can't, you can't argue with that. That's science. No, it's total cheating. And there's so much else that's going on. And I'm, again, I believe this is a spiritual issue. I don't believe these scientists are hiding in some dark corner saying, we know all this is fake, but we're going to lie about it. No, I, maybe somewhere someone's doing that. I'm sure Christians are doing that somewhere. <laughs> um, But most of the scientists, they really believe these things are true, so they won't allow themselves to consider anything else. It's just got to be true, so they're willing to kind of maybe cut corners and cheat a little bit, and they're generally doing it sincerely, but it's totally wrong, and it's not good science. Really, really quick reasons why these bones of dinosaurs cannot possibly be millions of years old. Number one, most dinosaur bones we dig up are still fresh. Here's a quote from an evolutionist. Bones do not have to be turned into stone to be fossils. And usually most of the original bone is still present in a dinosaur fossil. Modern bones fall into mineral springs, can become permineralized or fossilized within a matter of weeks. Fossilization can happen quickly. If the thing's been sitting around for 65 million years, it should have fossilized a long time ago, but most of them are still fresh. And we have carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. 
Carbon-14 only lasts a few tens of thousands of years. If these things are 65 or 100 million years old, it should be no carbon-14, even ruling out contamination. It's in the bones. And now, more recently, they have found soft tissue and red blood cells. I'm going to show you something that very, very, very few people on the planet have seen. Seriously. This is a little video. I think I can play it from my remote. There's no sound or anything. You are about to see soft tissue discovered in dinosaur bones. So watch this. It's being stretched in a laboratory and snapping back. That looks fresh. Is that 65 million years old? There is no imaginable way that soft tissue can last for millions of years, but there it is in a dinosaur bone. And I know you're all sick and tired of hearing about soft tissue and dinosaur bones, right? No? Oh, that's because they just discovered it yesterday and you eventually... No. Try 1995. Seriously, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, an evolutionist, discovered this. I'll skip some of the details. She's looking at dinosaur bones and she sees this. And she says, that looks like soft tissue and red blood cells. But she, she said, but it can't because it's 65 million years old. So she did her test again. It looked like soft tissue and red blood cells. But she said, but it, I mean, it can't because we know they're 65 million years old. She did her test again. It looks like Okay, you get the picture. 17 times. She admitted on, on one of the Nightline shows, she did her test 17 times because she wouldn't believe it. She finally had to cave in and say, hey, this is soft tissue and red blood cell and dinosaur bones. So what happened is all the scientists said, wow, we've been terribly wrong. Let's go to church and worship Jesus. <laughs> no. They come up with a rescuing device. Well, somehow, I guess there's something magical in nature that can preserve red blood cells and soft tissue for millions and millions of years. No, there's not. You read any articles, look for the word iron. Yeah, if you have iron in the environment, that can preserve things a little longer. A little bit of iron can preserve things a little bit longer. Not millions of years. In fact, you have too much iron, it's going to destroy it. They don't have answers. That's why you're not hearing about it. Creationists are having to do our own excavations to work on the bones ourselves because they're not going to share their data with us. I was on an excavation a couple summers ago. Again, all the testings are being... We're finding it all over the place now. And now, not only that, now we have DNA in dinosaur bones, which is more fragile than red blood cells and soft tissue. These things scream. These things were buried in the flood four and a half thousand years ago. We even have carbon-14 in diamonds. Diamonds are supposed to be at least one to three billion years old. You can't have carbon-14 in them. Whenever these diamonds form, they trap the carbon-14 in there. They weren't eating like I was talking about before, living things, but they would have trapped the carbon-14 in them, and it's still there. Oh, contamination. No, you cannot contaminate a diamond. It's the hardest natural substance known to mankind. These things were created either original creation week or you know, possibly during the flood. You can create a diamond in a laboratory in a few hours. It doesn't take time. It takes the right conditions. So very quickly, a few young age indicators. What we do with these methods, no method can tell you exactly how old the earth is because there's assumptions behind all of them. All we do is we look at all the methods we look at the assumptions to see how reasonable they are, and we come to a general conclusion. According to this method, it looks like this would probably be a limit. Earth can't be older than that. It could be younger. Yeah, it could be younger than this, but that's probably a good limit. Well, here's another limit. You look at all of them, you come up with a general conclusion. So that's all we're doing. So here's an example. Let's say you're out west. Two guys are walking out west, and they're coming up to an old gold mine. And they notice it caved in, and they're trying to figure out how long ago did this thing cave in. And one guy says, oh, I think it caved in 700 years ago. And his friend says, well, I, I don't think that's possible because how long have we been mining gold? You know, we haven't had gold mines for 700 years. So let's say 220 years ago we started mining for gold. They don't know when it caved in. 
But there's a limit now. Can't be more than 220 years because before that we didn't even have gold mines. So there's a limit according to that. Then they notice closer up, there's a watch buried in there, and it's a digital watch. How long have we been making digital watches? Maybe 40 years tops. They don't know when it caved in. But there's a further limit. It must be less than 40 years ago because if it caved in before that, it couldn't have buried a digital watch. Then they look at the watch closer, and they notice it's still ticking. How long do batteries last? Three or four years? They still don't know when it caved in, but now there is a further limit, probably less than three years ago. So all they did is they looked at certain factors and came up with reasonable limits. Not an actual age, reasonable limits. And that's what we do with these methods. And here are a few examples. Um, I'm going to skip something called rescuing devices where the skeptics try to say, yeah, but you've got to take this into account. Yeah, that's true. But when you do, it's still a valid evidence. So some of these you might know counters to, but you could go back and forth forever. The Earth's magnetic field. The Earth is like a giant magnet. And magnets get weaker over time. And the Earth's magnet is getting weaker too. They've been measuring it for over 180 years. So this thing is decaying. It has what we call a half-life of 1,400 years. That means every 1,400 years, the Earth's magnetic field is half as strong as it used to be. It keeps decaying that way. So graphically, if you look at here we are today on the left, in the future, 1,400 years into the future, it'll be half as strong as it is today. It's decaying by half. And another 1,400 years later, 2,800 years from now, it'll be down by another half, which will be down to a quarter. And that continues. That's not the interesting part going into the future. The interesting part is going backwards. So we're today now on the right, 1,400 years ago, it was twice as strong as it is today because it's decayed. So it was twice as strong 1,400 years ago. You go to another 2,800 years ago, it had been four times as strong. And then you keep going two times as strong, four times as strong, eight times as strong, 16 times as strong. Okay, how far back in the past can you go and have a magnetic field that strong in fact, you go back maybe 20,000 years and the heat produced by the Earth's magnetic field would have blown the Earth apart. That's 20,000 years ago, but they tell us the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. It, it doesn't work, so a reasonable limit. This isn't the age of the Earth. This is a limit. I don't think it could be older than 20,000 years. Could it be younger? Easily be younger. Could be much younger, but that's, that's an upper limit according to the Earth's magnetic field. That's just one example, and you keep using other ones. And again, I'm going to skip rescuing devices with the dynamo theory. It does not work with physics. Here's one. The moon is receding from the Earth about one and a half inches every year. The moon is getting further and further away from us every year. We've been measuring it. We know that. That's physics. Well, if it's getting further away in the future, that means it was closer. A year ago, it was an inch and a half closer to us. Two years ago, it would have been closer, like three inches closer to us. Well, how far back can you go in history? You can't go all the way back to where the moon is touching the earth. You get to a point that they call it the Roche limit, where the earth's magnetic field would have been so strong it would have blown the earth apart. So according to this, an upper limit would be 1.3 billion years. Oh, that's really old. Yeah, that, but that's an upper limit. Could the earth be much younger? It could be tons younger. It could be thousands of years old. But that would be a, max, a maximum limit to this very straightforward principle in physics. Make, give, them, give them their assumptions. You can have those assumptions. You make those assumptions, and this puts a limit. It can't be 4.6 billion years old. At most, 1.3, and there's many reasons why it can't even be that old. This is just another method that says you can't believe in 4.6 billion years. And then we have something called living fossils. Look on the left there. There's a fossil of a dragonfly. How do we know it's a dragonfly? Because we have dragonflies today. But the one on the left is millions and millions of years old. Well, it didn't change. 
in millions and millions of years of evolution, it's basically identical today. They call it a living fossil. Then we have the horseshoe crab, same thing. The fossil's identical to what we have today. But that's millions and millions of years of Earth history. Evolution can't slow down or pause for a while. It's copying years. They always happen. So changes should be occurring all the time, but there's no changes here. Then we have the coelacanth. This thing, they tell us, died out 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs died out. That's when this thing disappeared. It went extinct. There's a problem with that story. Uh, they're swimming around in the ocean today. I think it was 1948 we discovered one, and now we've seen many more. They didn't go extinct. So here's a problem with their story. There is a geologic column. They tell us this thing started to evolve about 420 million years ago and went extinct 65 million years ago. So the highlighted portion in the middle of the column, that's when it started to evolve. It existed all those years and then it died out 65 million years ago and didn't exist after that. Well, if it's still alive today, that means it didn't go extinct. It continued to live for another 65 million years, but it never got fossilized. It's not in those layers. How could it live for 65 million years and never get fossilized once? doesn't make any sense. And worse than that, it's been alive for over 400 million years, and it didn't change at all. It didn't start growing wings or legs, nothing. In 400 million years of evolution, this guy was not motivated. <laughs> you know, he didn't do anything with his life. Then you got bacteria, they say is 200 million years old. They revived it from a salt inclusion. After being dead for 250 million years and now it's alive again? Doesn't make sense. DNA retrieved from layers they claim to be 450 million years old. That's only 1 to 2% different than modern bacteria in the DNA. In 450 million years of evolution, almost no change. Tubes from marine worms, they dated 550 million years old, still soft and pliable. There's just no way. Genetic entropy, the human genome is degrading 1 to 5% every generation, every Every time we reproduce, we're adding about another 100 mutations to our DNA. We're going downhill. It caused one scientist to say, why are we not dead 100 times over if we've been evolving for millions of years? The talk that I just gave before this, that's the talk, evolution probable or problematic. You already heard about that one. Um, most, this is cool. Most of the mutations that they found so far in our DNA, they say arose in the last 200 generations or so. Wait a minute. If we've been evolving for six million years. Why are these genetic mistakes only showing up in the last 200 generations? If they're a product of nature and we can't stop them, they just happen. How come it only started like 200 generations ago? Guess what? You look at the biblical chronologies, guess how many generations are depicted with biblical narrative? About 200. That's why we're not seeing mutations before that, because we weren't around before that. I have to skip this one. This is one of the most important ones. We're only going to have a few minutes for Q&A because this talk took a lot longer and I want to get you out on time. I will be out at the table afterwards if you have additional questions, but I'm going to rush through finishing this off so we can get to some Q&A. Everyone asks this question, okay, the six-day creation thing is kind of crazy, but I'm willing to think about it, but what about this? We see stars that are hundreds of millions of light years away, meaning it should take, let's say, 200 million years for the light to travel to get to us. We're seeing them. So that means it's at least 200 million years old that you can't have the six-day creation. That is a legitimate question that needs to be answered. But, and I can answer it during Q&A. I want to finish the talk first. What's very fascinating is that that's not a, quote, young earth problem. Anyone who believes in the Big Bang in billions of years, they have the same light travel problem. They have a problem with light not being able to travel far enough all the way across the universe in 13.8 billion years. We are on level playing field at that point. We both have an issue that needs to be addressed, and it's how it gets addressed which 
tilts the scales towards a six-day creation big time. You can ask me that during Q&A. I can answer it kind of simply. So how old is the earth? Scientifically, there are over 100 methods all involving assumptions. Even if you give them the assumptions, 90% far point to ages that are far too young for the secular theories. Biblically speaking, the days were regular, ordinary days. Adam lived roughly 6,000 years ago, and he was created five days after creation. Now, again, we've gone over that, but that's just kind of a summary. Um, and again, for God, nothing is, shall be impossible. There is nothing too hard for God. He can do anything he wants. It's not about what he could do. It's about what he said he did. And that's the main point. It's not about the age of the earth. It's about the authority of Scripture. Do we really trust this or not? I'll close with this. Um, I was invited to go to a Bible study once. They were going through Genesis, and a friend of mine said, one guy's just fighting everything, fighting the creation account, fighting the flood and all that. So he said, I know you're traveling all the time, but if you're in town on a Saturday, could you pop in? So I did. Gave a little talk because they were talking about the flood, and right away this guy chimed in. He was, he was really upset. He goes, the Genesis creation account is not believable. It's not true. Science has disproven it. There never was a global flood. Secular geologists say there's no evidence for it whatsoever, so you cannot take it that way. And I said, you know, if, if scientists have proven anything, they've proven people don't come back from the dead. Maybe after 90 seconds or three minutes, depending on how you define death, you know, and really being alive, but not after three days. So even though the Bible says Jesus rose again on the third day, we, we know better now that couldn't have happened. It's impossible. He looked at me, and he got very upset. He goes, no, you're being sarcastic. And I said, no, no, I seriously don't want to be disrespectful. I'm just using your logic. You say scientists have shown certain things, so therefore the Bible can't mean what it says. He goes, yeah, but that was a miracle, Jesus rising from the dead. I said, no, I agree with, agree with you on that. And just like Jesus could rise after three days, he could create everything in six days, just like he said. Oh, he grabbed his Bible right away, just stormed out. He's very upset. And, and I understand that. The guys in the Bible study apologize. He says, no, you don't need to apologize. I said, this guy's struggling with this. I'm glad he's thinking through this. And I want him to continue to think about this. It's not about having my view. It's about really spending time in here. Whatever you come up with, make sure you can back it up and have prayed about it and studied. So with that, um, we'll do the Q&A. I mentioned our resources last night. The cool thing is everything we have is available online and at the table. Most of what we have is free. So I don't mind talking about it now because almost all of it is free. We've got 22 streamable video sessions. We do have DVDs. We're phasing them out. Um, Rob and Denise are helping me, friends of mine at the table out there. I said, if you want to sell whatever DVDs we have, that's fine. So work it out with them. I don't care. But we're mainly doing streaming. The streaming is free. All 22 sessions, plus I'm going to be making a bunch more. Those will be free as well. I started a podcast three weeks ago. There are three episodes out there now. You can get that through iPod and through Spotify. Uh, that's all free. We also have a free email newsletter. You can sign up at the table or our website comes out once a month free. Question of the Month article, you can get that for free on our website or through the newsletter. Also did a lot of live stream broadcasts. You can get those free from our website as well. Lots of other resources. The only thing that we're selling is because it costs us a lot is to produce the books that I've written. So there are three books out there. Uh, those are available. Uh, and then also I already mentioned the Grand Canyon Tour. The brochures are out there along with posting all the dates. So with that, we've got about 14 minutes left for Q&A. We'll do this rapid fire. Ask whatever question you want, whether it's something I covered or not. And I'm going to work super hard to try to be as brief as I can. I might offend you by not saying enough, but I just can't go into another lecture, and I don't want to keep you past noon. But I will be at the table around noon if you have additional questions. So go ahead and ask. First question. Distant starlight. Distant starlight. Okay, great. Oh, look at the time. No. 
I actually like addressing this question because it's pertinent. Everyone kind of wonders about that, and it just seems to scream, okay, the universe just has to be old, and whatever else you said, I don't know, because this is just, this is a killer. I already mentioned that both sides have a problem. Let me explain why, and then I will explain how each side handles it, and you're going to see why one has a lot more credibility. We already know why the young earth creationists have a problem, because six-day creation, 6,000 years ago, how does that comport with in 200 million years for these stars that we're seeing? Number one, we're assuming those stars are really that far away. We don't know that for sure. I think they're really out there. I think there's enough evidence. Yeah, there's a huge universe. I don't question that. Anyone who believes in the Big Bang, whether they're an atheist or a Christian, they would believe basically the universe is 13.8 billion years old. There is not enough time in 13.8 billion years for light to travel from one side of the universe to the other side to spread out the temperature. But they believe it must have, and here's why. If you... Picture your home again, hot cup of coffee in the kitchen, say it's 150 degrees. If enough time goes by, what happens? The heat from the coffee dissipates into the kitchen, now everything's room temperature and you're mad that the coffee's cold, right? But you have to have enough time for the heat to go out and do that. Well, the universe is room temperature in a sense. Everything's the same temperature. But you'd have to have enough time for light to travel to spread out the temperature. That's how light or heat gets dissipated by light traveling. But they don't have enough time in 13.8 billion years for the light to get everywhere it needs to go to spread out the temperature. There they have a problem. We both have the same problem. So how does each side solve it? Since it happened in the past, nobody can prove anything. Because it happened once in the past, all we can do is come up with models that help us better understand what might have happened to explain it away. So models. Okay, what does the side do who accepts uh, an old universe? They literally make stuff up. And again, I'm not trying to be derogatory or disrespectful at all. I'm being literal. They literally invent things to solve their problem. They say maybe the physics were different in the early universe. I just actually heard a lecture last night by one of the leading physicists. He was saying, well, the physics could have been very different back then, and then they used a different physics to do whatever they needed to do. So what they say is maybe the laws of science were different back then, physics worked differently, and they do this. So you know the Big Bang, it's this expansion, it forms the universe. Not only did it expand, but they say it expanded really fast early on. They call it inflation, not financial inflation. Expansion of the universe, and not just expansion, but super, super, super fast. And I think they say it expanded 100 trillion trillion times. So not just like doubling or tripling. It expanded 100 trillion trillion times, and how fast did it do it? In a millionth of 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 a second. (laughs) How did they discover that? They didn't discover it. They need that to happen. And what that did is that would spread out the light while the universe is small, smooth out the temperature, and now that it's smooth, you can keep it expanding, and you don't have that problem. Inflation, if that actually happened, would solve that light travel problem. But they're making up laws of science to do that. What caused inflation? There's nothing we know of that could possibly do that. And now they got a problem. They made it fast enough to spread out the light, but now it's going too fast. You can't form stars, galaxies, and planets. So they had to slow it down. What's going to slow it down? There's nothing out there. It's not expanding into anything. There's nothing to slow it down. They just need it to slow it down. And not only do they need it to slow down, they have to slow it down to the perfect, 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 perfect speed. Because if they slow it down too much, the universe collapses in on itself. If you don't slow it down enough, it goes too fast, you don't form anything. So they have to balance the, the accelerated speed that it's expanding at now with the gravitational pullback, and it's this unbelievably fine-tuned balance. And they have to say, well, we just kind of got lucky, 
Like, I don't think so. So they're constantly making things up. Most of the universe, 95% of what they say the universe is out there, is unknown. Dark energy and dark matter. Why is it dark? Because they can't really detect it. And, you know, and it's a, so you're saying your solution for the universe is making up 95% of it, and you say you've got all the answers when you can't test the dark energy and the dark, dark matter. So anyway, they do a lot of interesting things that are really not scientific, and their models are not testable. You cannot test the inflation model, and the inflation model leads to what we call the multiverse, and it gets absolutely bizarre. It's just crazy. A lot of things that they don't believe, but they realize, yeah, that's kind of what it implies. So that's what happens on the one side. All right, what about the other side? We are using known laws of physics to come up with models that would help us explain how could light travel farther than we would expect in a short period of time? General relativity. Einstein's theory of general relativity. Gravity affects time. Gravity can slow time down. That sounds bizarre. I, I honestly think it's absolutely bizarre, but it's absolutely true because we can test it. In fact, some of you have one of these odd objects. Someday we are going to be laughing at these. Can you, you remember when we used to carry these around in our pockets and all that? Um, but you use this, and you probably use a GPS on it. It would not work if we didn't understand general relativity. Why? Because it's bouncing off of satellites to get signals to tell you like, where you are when you're driving. Well, the satellites are way up in space, and you're down here, closer to the center of the Earth. Gravity is stronger where you're standing than where the satellites are. So guess what? Time is ticking a little bit faster up at the satellite than it is here on Earth because gravity is slowing it down, a very small amount. But they need to take that into account or your GPS is going to be off. Gravity affects time. We're using known laws of science that have been tested over and over and over to show how through certain scenarios, light could actually have traveled a long distance in six-day creation. I'll skip the technical details. It can get really technical. And there are various models. And there are models that are testable. We'll never know which one's right. Some are more reasonable than others, but we're using known science to come up with a solution versus making stuff up. So that's my quick answer. You talk to another creationist, they're going to talk about gravitational time dilation and all these things, and you'd be like, uh, what was that? And it's not practical to help you. So I've been trying to coach some of them, saying, hey, can you talk about this generic scenario before you talk about the technical details of your model? So another question. Well, someone texted me a question. Sure. I didn't want to stand up. Um, uh, so uh, my human anatomy professor in grad school said that the way our human body is put together screams intelligent design. It's marvelous, marvelously uh, engineered, but doesn't believe, God, uh, b believe it was created by God or designed by God, but some other intelligent life form out there in space. How would you respond to that? Sure. I would respond very well. Let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll finish with this question because I just, I really don't want, I feel like I've abused you already. This, I've never given a talk this long because this is too much, but it's just so much to cover. And that was just scratching the surface, seriously. I will end with this question. I will close in prayer. You can come up afterwards and then I'll be in the lobby afterwards. But this is really, it's an awesome question. Because we're saying, of course, this universe isn't an accident. I mean, look at the complexity in the solar system and the DNA and all that. that. That is legitimate evidence for purpose, for design. It really is. But then someone like that or other people, many people say, fine, I, I agree, it's designed, but it wasn't the God of the Bible. It was aliens. In fact, you've probably heard of the name Dr. Francis Crick. Yeah, he happens to be the co-discoverer of the DNA molecule. Brilliant, brilliant scientist. He was an atheist. When he first looked at DNA, he said, no, it's just, you know, evolution can do that. And then he realized, no, there's no way. 
There was no way that that could happen by accident on this planet. It must have been designed. But not the God of the Bible. It was aliens, because he's an atheist. So he needed an intelligent agent, but he didn't want it to be the God of the Bible. So he said there must have been, literally, there must have been aliens at least, you know, you know, 15 plus billion years ago. No, he's talking about the origin of life. So maybe about 4 billion years ago, this intelligent life form somewhere else in the universe that we can't see, they designed life in seed form, put it on spaceships, and flew it to Earth so that 3.8 billion years ago, that life could start to develop from there. It was already alive because it was in seed form design, and it went from there because he realized there's no way that that could happen by accident. So he was willing to go to an intelligent source, but not the God of the Bible. And to a certain extent, that is totally legitimate. All the DNA stuff I showed you screams design. It doesn't prove the God of the Bible. So the question is, okay, why are we saying the God of the Bible? And they say aliens. Very simple. I would ask them, okay, you're saying these intelligent beings you know, created all that. That's fine. They certainly could do that. You're just going to say they're so intelligent they could do this. You're going to define them however you want, and you're going to make sure that they're powerful enough to do this. It wouldn't make sense to say, yeah, they're really smart, but they couldn't do this. No, you're going to make them instantly that smart. Okay, fine. What is your evidence? What is your indication it was those aliens? Where did they come from? How did they get here? Really, really quick, i got to throw this in because it's kind of humorous. Um, what was it called? Um, the subtitle was No Intelligence Allowed. Um, it was Ben, ben Stein... Uh, Expelled. It was called Expelled, No Intelligent Design. Excellent documentary. You have to watch it sometime. It came out a number of years ago, but it wasn't about creation. It wasn't even bashing evolution. It was just saying, if you want to say you believe that something was done on purpose, you're going to get expelled out of the school system. You won't be able to get grant money to do research and all that. Very powerful. But in that, he interviewed Richard Dawkins. He was, again, one of the world's leading atheists. And he asked, he, this, Ben Stein is just amazing. He's very humorous. But he asked Dawkins point blank, is it possible, is it just possible that someday we might discover something that is so complex that it must have been designed? And Richard Dawkins, the hardened atheist, said, yes, it's possible, yes, that someday, he doesn't think we've done it yet, but someday we might discover something that is so complex that it must have been designed. But it would have to have been designed by a higher life form that they themselves came about through an evolutionary process. Now, let's think about this. He's saying this thing we see here is so complex, yeah, that's not an accident. It had to have been designed. But it would have been designed by a higher, more complex life form that they came about by accident. Wait a minute, if this couldn't come about by accident, something even more complex, they couldn't come about by accident through evolution, they would have had to be designed. So it makes no sense. And this is what happens between the difference between intelligence and wisdom. Dawkins is intelligent, doesn't have the wisdom. So the question comes, what's your evidence that it is this alien being? No evidence, zero whatsoever. Theoretically, yes, an alien could do that. What is your evidence that that is the solution? Absolutely nothing other than that's their preferred preference. What would we say? We would say we believe it's the God of the Bible because the God who did all this actually left us a note. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. This note that the God, the creator of this universe, left us because guess what? You could look at dirt and DNA all day long and it would never tell you who created it, why they created it, what they want from you, and what happens to you when you die. You can't get that from looking at the DNA. But if 
the creator left you a note, he could say, hello, I'm the one who did it. This is why I did it. This is what happened to it. Here's my plan to fix it. Here's what happens to you when you die. That's what the Bible claims to be. And we're going to look at some awesome evidence tomorrow morning as to why we can trust this. So first of all, we have a personal communication from the God that we believe in telling us that. Now, I could write a book tonight making all those claims. I just can't back it up. But the Bible gives us ways of testing this, and there's so much evidence that the claims it's making are true. So we need an intelligence to do all this. I'm going with the one who has communicated to us and told us in a way that we can test and has actually sent his own son to die on a cross so we could not only academically believe in him, but we could actually have a relationship with him. And that's the whole difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is all about rules. Christianity is about relationship with Jesus Christ, the son of the creator. So it's just cool stuff. Great question. That's why we would say, yeah, I agree with you on the intelligence thing, but I have evidence that we know who the intelligent agent is because he communicated with us and gave us evidence to test. I'm not sure we got any evidence from your alien. Do you have anything written down that we could take a look at? So great stuff. I'm going to close in a word of prayer and let our pastor come up, and then afterwards I'll be in the lobby. But again, as I said last night, please, please do not come back tomorrow morning alone. Bring someone with you, a skeptic, atheist, whomever, they will be graciously welcomed. This would be the best place for them to be. They can, we're not doing Q&A for the service, but afterwards they can ask me any question they want, and I will show them great honor. I'm always incredibly honored when skeptics come to my talks. This would be a great place for them to be and let God's Spirit work in their lives or remove the blinders so that ultimately they can get to know the Creator through Jesus Christ. So let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that you've allowed us to have here. Ultimately looking at the authority of your word, it's not really even about science or creation or the flood or anything. It's about Jesus Christ. And that's the only topic that's going to be on the table when we stand or more likely kneel before you. It's not going to be about whether we believed in evolution or the flood or the, certainly not the age or the earth or the universe. One question, what did you do with Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that matters. Two answers are possible. You either tried your hardest and did your best according to your philosophy. The other one is that God is going to judge us based on his standard, which he's told us in the Bible. It's 100% faith in the death, burial, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, to pay a price we could never pay. He shed his blood on the cross. And by accepting that as a free gift, we are granted entrance into heaven and fellowship with our creator forever. And we just thank you for all these things and these times that you give to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.